0: And the idea is to be in solidarity with Ukrainian scholars and students uh, to share and to produce knowledge, to discuss important ideas, and also to build awareness uh, about Ukraine globally. And to this end, we invite uh, influential, famous uh, scholars, uh, philosophers, historians, uh, and diplomats to discuss their ideas and uh, to put their ideas in the context of what is happening now in Ukraine. And today we have a very special guest, Uh, he's a world leading uh, philosopher and cultural theorist, uh, Slavoj Žižek. I remember that once um, he said that he likes, in one of the interviews, he said that he likes when people call him the most dangerous philosopher in the world, even though it was meant to be a criticism but I think he embraced it with his famous humor. And today, uh, Slavoj Žižek will give a lecture uh, for about 60 minutes about what is freedom today. And we also have Jennifer Mortez-Shvili. Jennifer Murtazashvili from Pittsburgh University. She is the director of Center for Governance and Markets. She has uh, lived and she studied Afghanistan and Ukraine a lot, and she partners with Key School of Economics, and many projects, uh, she's also brick like myself. Um, so we we are not related, but we are soulmates. And uh, thank you very much to all of you, for, you know, to spend these uh, ninety w- or maybe more minutes with us. I will mention one more uh, idea. Please check the comment sections because from time to time we will uh, ask. For your feedback, I will send you poll whether you agree or disagree with some ideas that we are discussing, and maybe this can help us to navigate the discussion after the lecture. With this, I will remain silent. Um uh, so, uh, Slavoj, please, the, the time is yours.
1: Thank you very much. <clears throat> I will begin with what will sound as the usual rhetoric, but this time I mean it seriously. It's an honor for me to be here. Because I think that places like EFA shouldn't be treated just in this patronizing way from my comfortable home. I say, oh, you're suffering. I should help you, and so on. I have a mistrust of these big universities where they think they are the center of the world, big American European universities, but you meet very stupid people today. My worst experiences are at Princeton, Yale, and so on. So let me begin. In an old Soviet joke, a new arrival to Gulag, condemned to 10 years, is asked by other prisoners. What were you given 10 years for? The new arrival answers for nothing. I'm guilty of nothing. I shout back at him. Don't lie to us. Everybody knows here that for nothing you get triggers, not ten. There is, I think, a profound wisdom in this code. In every social community, there is no neutral nothing. Nothing has a price, determined by those in power, which means that we are all, in some sense, a priori guilty, and that you have to work hard to get rid of this guilt and being given nothing. Why? Because we are free, but... This freedom is necessarily ambiguous. I want to develop this ambiguity, which is not just linked to totalitarian regimes or whatever, but it's general, I think. I don't know how it works in your language. In Slovene, we also can do it. Namely, what in English they have is two terms for freedom, freedom and liberty. I think they can be interpreted as the distinction between what Hegel, abstract freedom and concrete freedom. Abstract freedom is the ability to do what you want independently of social rules and customs. You can even violate these rules and so on. Of course, exemplarily in a revolt, war, revolutionary situation. Concrete freedom is the freedom sustained by a set of rules and customs. My freedom is only actual as freedom within certain social spaces regulated by rules and prohibitions. I can walk freely along a busy street because I can be reasonably sure that others on the street will behave in a civilized way towards me. That if they attack me or if they insult me, they will be punished. So let me take the case of freedom to speak and communicate with others. I can only exert this freedom if I obey the commonly established rule of language with all their ambiguities and inclusive of the unwritten rules, messages between the labs. And to, this may be a particular an important point, but I think it is crucial even to understand this politics, how Putin is acting, how Russians are acting. Namely, I want now to refer to your everyday experience even. We all know that if you live in a community where you speak certain language, which is regulated by certain explicit rules, what you can do, what you cannot do, It's never as simple as that. Every community doesn't simply obey rules. You have deeper rules which tells you which rules not only you can violate a little bit, but which rules you are even expected to violate, especially since you are in war now, in the army life. Many things are prohibited, but de facto, you're expected to violate these rules. On the other hand, even more interesting for me, there are things that you are allowed to do, even solicited, but you are not expected to do them. For example, I don't know if in your country, you have the same custom, let's say that I, I, Timothy, to a, a restaurant. Let's say that maybe, I'm not even sure, I have more money than you, I invite you, so it's clear that I will pay. But in my country, when the bill arrives, you have to pretend for some time, no, no, I will contribute, let's share the money, and so on. It's a pure formality because you are expected to say, "Okay, then you pay after I don't know twenty seconds." But this rule has to be obeyed. So, what interests me immensely are prohibi along these lines are prohibitions which are themselves prohibited in the sense that you must obey them, but you are prohibited to state even the prohibition publicly. My popular example from Stalinism. In Soviet Union, there was not only prohibited to criticize publicly Stalin, of course, it was also prohibited to publicly say that it is prohibited to criticize Stalin. Imagine we are in a Central Committee session I'm Stalin. Somebody raises his hand and criticizes me. Okay, next the the question will be who's the guy to see him alive. But let's imagine then, then somebody else like you, Timothy. You stand up and say to this guy who attacked me, Stalin, are you stupid? Don't you know in our country, it is prohibited to criticize Stalin? You will disappear even faster, I claim. You see the paradox. It was prohibited to criticize Stalin, but this prohibition itself had to remain secret. And I think that all our diplomacy today, even war moves, when Putin says something so on, it's always done in this way, way that you always have to raise the question what are the unwritten rules is it meant literally what he says Uh, the problem today is that politicians often violate the unwritten rules you know that's the horror in united states donald trump was doing this he usually didn't break the law but it's part of a communal consensus that you do things in a certain way, manner. This is the substance of our lives. Now, let me go a step further concerning the army in this line of We encounter here what I call inherent transgression. A social space is not just the space of what is permitted, but also the space of what is repressed, excluded from the public space, but simultaneously necessary for this public space to reproduce itself. Let me ask, give you an example, a naive uh, question. Why does the army, in military, right, so strongly resist? Publicly accepting homosexuals into its rank. There is only one consistent answer, I think. Not because homosexuality poses a threat to the alleged patriarchal, phallic, or what libidinal economy of the army. On the contrary, because the army community itself relies on. Uh, This about repressed homosexuality is the key component of the soldier's male bonding. I experienced this when uh, 45 years ago, I was serving in the infamous Yugoslav people's army. Strike me immediately. On the one hand, the army life was... Homophobic to the extreme. If somebody was discovered to be gay, she was beaten, humiliated by other soldiers before, after a week or so, being dismissed from the army. But at the same time, everyday army life was full of atmosphere of homosexual innuendos. Like I remember in my unit, when in the morning, you met your another soldier, your friend. You never simply said hello, good morning. In my unit, the expression to be used was in Serbo Croat, which means smoke my prick. And uh, this formula was so standardized, we even didn't pronounce it with a small, obscene smile. It was just a pure act of politeness. So the point not to be missed here is that this fragile coexistence of extreme violent homophobia with publicly disavowed homosexuality bears witness to the fact that in a military community, only by censoring its own libidinal foundation. Censoring, not eliminating it. <clears throat> so again, our space of concrete freedom is sustained by such ambiguous rules. Is my first point. My second point. The contours of freedom are, of course, historically variable. Uh, The predominant notion of freedom is always historically specific. To simplify to the utmost, in traditional societies, freedom does not refer to equality. Freedom means that each person should be free to play its specific role in the hierarchic order. In modern societies, freedom is linked to abstract legal equality and personal liberty. A poor worker and a rich employer of him are equally free. In 20th century, freedom was more and more linked to social circumstances, which enable you to actualize it, freedom, minimal welfare, free education, and so on. Today, the accent is on the freedom of choice, which I think implies that we ignore how the very frame of choices is imposed on Individuals. There are always some choices which are de facto privileged. And I think true freedom begins when you are allowed to question what is meant by freedom, not just fitting into freedom which is given to you. What this means is that at this very moment, and we are supporting Ukraine in its for freedom, we should be attentive to what this freedom is or will be. As an opera lover, I remember the finale of the act one of Mozart's Don Giovanni, which begins with Don Giovanni's powerful appeal to all present, viva la libertà, long live freedom repeated forcefully by all, the music gets stuck at this point of full engagement. But the catch is of course that although the entire group is enthusiastically unified around the call to each subgroup probably projects into libertà, freedom, its own dreams and hopes. And that's, for me, the problem. Imagine a situation of political unity where all sides are united under the sign of freedom. But every particular group projects a different meaning into universality. Freedom, for some, means anarchic freedom outside the state law. For others, freedom of property. For others, yet social conditions which allow individuals to realize their potentials, and so on, and so on. So this is my question. Now in Ukraine, you are in that Don Giovanni stage. You have an extraordinary unity. You are all crying like Don Giovanni, viva la libertà. But if, or more hopefully, when, will succeed in your struggle, You will face the truth. Which freedom should you finally enjoy? Should you just try to catch up with Western liberal democracy? I'm not sure. Western liberal democracy is now in a deep I don't think you should formula propose Jürgen Habermas, who use this term, in German it's nach Hollande, catch up revolution, that all you can do in post-communist East is to catch up with Western Europe. It's not bad to do this, but again, Western Europe is in a deep crisis now. And you know where I see the crisis? Think of movements Podemos in Spain, Yellow Vests in France, they, formulate a certain discontent of population. But this discontent cannot be translated into the existing political system. This situation is very dangerous. So this, I'm afraid, will not be enough for you. Just let's become like Western Europe. Should you join the conservative populist axis of Poland and Hungary. I'm skeptical about this. So, uh, what? Uh, what? What? Sorry. Uh, what then should you do? Well, first you are doing the right thing. Now, back to Hegel. Hegel knew well this concrete freedom is there are moments when abstract freedom has to intervene. What do I mean by this? Uh, sorry, I, just, here I got an opinion, Paul. Okay, whatever, sorry, something up here. Okay, okay let's go. In the December 44 issue of The Atlantic, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote immediately after France was liberated, I quote Sartre, Never were we freer than under the German occupation. We lost all our rights. First of all, our right to speak. They, the Germans, insulted us to our faces. And that is why the resistance was a true democracy. For the soldier, for his superior, the same danger, the same loneliness, the same responsibility, the same absolute freedom within the discipline. This situation full of anxiety and danger was freedom, not liberty. Liberty was established when post-war normality returned. So in Ukraine today, you who fight the Russian invasion are free and you fight for liberty. The problem I see here, not with you, but in the West, is that more and more approaching a situation in which millions of people think that they have to act freely, violate the rules in order to protect their liberty, their social order. Remember, uh, on January 6th, 2021, when, a crowd of populist partisans of Donald Trump invaded the capital. Sorry, the capital. They did a revolution. So we are in a mess. What is this mess about? The multiple crises and even apocalyptic projects, prospects, that we are facing today seem to evoke more and more ominously the four riders of the Apocalypse from the Book of Revelation. Plague, war, hunger, death. Although global awareness of the threat is growing. It is not allowed, followed by adequate activity. So the four riders writer, are galloping faster and faster. First plague, at the end of 2019, could explode and change our lives forever. And it is still here and I think it will remain. We can expect other new waves or other pandemics. War. With the Russian attack on Ukraine, hot war in Europe, even if some kind of truce will be enforced, war forcefully asserted itself as a general condition of our lives so that peace is just a temporary exception. We all want peace, but I'm here totally on your side against some of my pseudo-leftist Western friends. abstract calls for peace are not enough. Peace is not a term which allows us to draw the key political difference. Occupiers always sincerely want peace in the ter- territory they hold. Germany definitely wanted peace in the Eight France from 1940 till 44. Israel wants peace on the occupied West Bank. And Russia is, as they say, and in some stupid sense it's true, in a mission for peace in Ukraine. But peace must we totally control the situation. That's why, as Etienne Balibar put it in an honestly brutal way, today, apropos Ukraine, pacifism is not an option. Yes, we should prevent a new great war. But the only way to do it is to engage in a total against the situation in which we are. The third rider of apocalypse, hunger. It's also on the horizon. I think the greatest scandal today, one of the, is what Russia is doing in Odessa now. You have millions of tons of grain in the third world. world People begin to starve and it means hunger. Even more because of global warming. Warming, are we ready for mass migrations? There will be, I think, riots and so on. We are approaching very dangerous state. My last thought, right? The apocalypse, death. I don't mean here death in general. What has to say about death is what said in my my uh, my favorite Polish graffiti from 40 years ago. It's the definition of life that I know. Life is a disease transmitted by sex, which always ends with death. But what I mean with death as a fourth rider is something much more radical. I've written about it. Uh, I mean. The end of humanity as we, which is threatening us through the latest modes of digital control of our daily lives, especially the prospect of, our, of what some people call wired brain, neural link, the direct link between our thinking processes and digital machines. This is not a utopia. It is already up to some level happening. And can you even imagine how this will change our lives? Even my thoughts will no longer be mine. And friends from China, who are not even afraid to email me censor, are giving me so many doubt about this. How so in some Chinese elementary schools, uh, uh, pupils only have to wear just a tiny ring around their head, which measures the brain activity, not thoughts. But the idea is that it shows on the teacher's computer if you are not actively following the class. That's the future. So. What will happen? Will we still be human? In what sense will we be free? Isn't our basic freedom the freedom of thought in the simple sense that I may not mean you personally, Demofi, but I appear to be friendly to you, but who knows what do I think in my head? <laughs> That's, if I am deprived of this in a way I'm deprived of a very distance between what goes in in myself and outside world. In a way, I'm no longer human. So are we doomed? Do I have only bad news? No, because at the same time, we are free. Free in a radical sense of being able to change not only the future, but even our past. What do we mean by this? Let me begin with a quote from the great conservative poet, T.S. Eliot. Quote, what happens when a new work of art is created is something that happens simultaneously to all the works of art which preceded it. The past should be altered by the present as much as the present is directed by the past. End of quote. What do we mean by this? Let's take the example of Shakespeare. A great staging of Hamlet day is not just a new interpretation of the play. It, in a way, feels the empty spaces in Shakespeare itself. Shakespeare didn't know fully what he is saying. The place full of inconsistencies. So that's my idea. I don't have time to go into it now. I like a kind of the idea of a kind of unfinished ontology. The world is not fully here. So with every progress forwards, the meaning, not the facts when you kill many people it's a fact, but the meaning of the past changes. Uh, this is where ideology enters, and this is, of course, where you, Ukraine, enter. I will tell you how. I remember how many of you know this. I know a wonderful detail from the history of Darwinism. Darwin had a friend, uh, a deep, uh, a, a priest who believed literally in the Bible, but at the same time saw the truth of Darwin's theory. So he had a problem. How to reconcile the proofs of the evolutionary theory, fossils, and so on, which shows how life on Earth slowly developed in millions of years, and the Bible, which taken literally tells that the world was created about 4,000 years BC, before Christ. So if the world was created 4,000 years ago, how can we explain the fossils? Ah, the guy, the priest, I forgot his name, gave a wonderful answer. When God created the world, he directly created fossils as such. So that, you know, the way you create a movie set, a false background. He gave us a false opening. God created traces of an imagined past. This Christian solution, of course, is not true as a scientific theory, but it provides an adequate theory of ideology. Every ideology, in some sense, creates forces It does not create, it creates an imagined past which fits the present. And are we aware, these are details, how many of the things we identify today as our past were created in this retroactive way? For example, uh, my Scottish friend told me that, this kind of call them kilt, the skirts were by men, they were invented, in Scottish national revival early 19th century. Or, you know, the Vikings wearing uh, ho- uh, horns, or how do you put it in their hands? This was invented, this was even invented through opera stagings around 1820. We are always reinventing our past. Why am I losing time by this? Because politics works in the same time. With all the criticism of Chinese communism, I like how in 1953, in uh, Geneva during the negotiations to end Korean War, a French journalist asked Chu lai Chinese prime minister who was there, what does he think about the French revolution? Chu lai replied, it is still too early to tell. In a way, he was right. When in Eastern Europe in 1990s, so-called people's democracies, communism, disintegrated, the struggle for the historical place of the French Revolution exploded again. Conservatives claimed that with the fall of communism, 1989, The entire era, which began exactly 200 years ago in 1789, came at the end, the epoch of revolution. Is it true or not? It depends on what will happen. So again, in every historical conjecture, present is not only present, it also encompasses a perspective on the past to this present. After the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991, the October Revolution is no longer perceived as the beginning of a new progressive epoch, but the beginning of a catastrophic misdirection of history, which Reached its end in 1991. So why am telling you this? Because I think, please be aware, you are. But I repeat it, in your struggle against Russian invasion now, you are not only trying to sustain the space for your future. You are trying to, what is at stake is also your past. You know, Walter Benjamin, great Marxist, a good one, said that in every revolution, what is to be redeemed is also the past. Progressive attempts. In the same sense, you are now trying to redeem your past. If you lose, your past will be rewritten by the winners, and you will evoke, be evoked with some sympathy, maybe, but, are oh, you know, that half-disappeared nation which tried and you are fighting for your past. Of course, now, let's go on, more and more complex. Think, uh, don't be too bored, things will get more different, more uh, interesting now. But this change of the past, of course, happens only at the level of symbolic space. Brutal reality cannot be changed. But this opens another paradoxical position. What about necessity or fate which can realize itself only through being known? That's our danger today. What do I mean is, I'm sorry if this is known to some of you, uh, my favorite, this paradoxical story, it's uh, an ancient Arab story about the appointment in Samara. It was retold by William Somerset Mom and many other writers. Here is the story. I'm sorry if you know it on an errand in the busy market of Baghdad hit death there. Terrified by seeing death, he runs home to his master and asks him to give him a horse so that he can ride all the day and reach uh, quickly Samara, another city in the north of Iraq, where death will not fight him. The good master not only gives the servant a horse, but goes himself to the market, after death, finds death, and shouts at death, why did you scare my faithful servant? Death replies, but I didn't want to scare your servant. I was just surprised about what was he doing here in Baghdad when I have an appointment in Samara with him tomorrow. So the message of this story is a beautiful one. It's not that man's demise is impossible to avoid, that trying to twist free of it will only tighten the grip of death, but rather the exact opposite. What if you knowing about your fate and trying to avoid it is how what you think your fate realizes itself. Should I even know it? The best known example, Oedipus. You know how it all begins. Parents of Oedipus are told, your son will marry his mother, kill his father. So to get rid of this, they send him away. And then, then this is how it happens. Oedipus wanders around, kills a man, not knowing it's his father, and so on, uh, and so on. The paradox is that if the parents of Oedipus were to say, "Okay, if it happens, it happens. Who cares about prophecy?" Nothing would happen. There would be there would be no Oedipus, uh, no Oedipus uh, uh, complex, and so on, and so on. <clears throat> Here again, you in Ukraine. We're doing the right thing. Now, I'll say, what has this to do with Ukraine? I don't know how it is with you, but even among leftist liberals in the West, it was proper to say, yes, it's nice, you try to resist, but basically, look, all of it, you don't have a chance. You are lost. And no, you said, okay, maybe this is our fate, but we behave as if we don't know our fate. We fight. I will return to this later. Uh, But I think that we are caught in this paradox today. Uh, That how we know what is awaiting us. Media are telling us all the time, ecological crisis, global warming, viruses. Precisely through knowing it and not reacting seriously to it, the fate actualizes itself. This is why, permit me to quote my good friend, Adrian Johnston, and how he characterized today's geopolitical situation, a long quote. He wrote, today we are in a situation in which The world societies and humanity as a whole are facing multiple acute crises: global pandemic, environmental disasters, massive inequality, poverty, wars, and so on, yet seem unable to take measures necessary to resolve the crisis. We know things are broken. We know what needs fixing. We even sometimes have ideas about how to fix things, but nevertheless, we keep doing nothing, either to mend damage already done or to prevent further damage. Uh, So we are in some sense stuck. Why? Uh, The model of this stuckness was, uh, remember half a year ago, or when the Glasgow conference on global warming. Yeah, they were saying all the right things, but nothing followed. There's a lesson I will later return of this. Uh, I think the paradox is that in Western capitalism, we are hyperactive and we are in an apathy precisely because things are happening so fast that we cannot make a step back and reflect on things we are a little bit like compulsive neurotics believe me or not i know what this means because i am one of them compulsive neurotics talk all the time not because they want to say something but yes jennifer i'm afraid of you but that if they stop talking for a second others will see that that all I'm saying is bullshit and ask me the serious question, you know, this hyperactivity where you are active, not to achieve something, but precisely to make it sure that nothing has changed. And in Western Europe, what this means is that ideology functions more and more in a cynical way, which means to quote Peter Sloterdijk's formula of cynicism, I know what I'm doing, but I'm nonetheless doing it. Knowing what we are doing doesn't prevent us from going on doing it. I don't know how much you were in earlier happier times part of it, but the true horror for me was ah, I hate them. You know this big art biennales. Venice, Venezia, castle. I know that a paradox, their program is always the most radical critique of capitalism. Today's societies are modified, we have to fight it and so on, but it doesn't matter. This same Biennales perfectly fit capitalist self reproduction. In socialism, it can be the same. With you, those old enough to remember the horror of Soviet Union, probably is like this, but in ex-Yugoslavia, when I was young, we had the ideology of self-management socialism. But the condition for this ideology to function was not to take it seriously. I had a guy who was a naive communist. He thinks self-management, good idea, workers should really take over he lost his job at Central Committee because he was considered dangerous. My God, he takes things seriously, then he will become a dissident if you take things seriously, and so on, and so on. Now, the last metaphysical point, and slowly I'm coming to the end. Uh, This totally cynical functioning is a moment, I think, of what, the Korean, South Korean, of course, social theorist who is now popular in the West, Byung chul Han observed observed very well S-D. He calls it getting pathological of our collective rituals. We no longer know how to uh, mourn properly. We just have neurotic private ceremonials, confessional experiences, and so on. We no longer are able to do ritual acts, which include feelings, but not feelings of isolated individuals. It's kind of objective, collective feeling. This agency is what Lacan calls big other, the social substance. And it's extremely important. What do I mean by this? One more example. To understand this, I would like to remind you, maybe some of you know, the notion elaborated by my good friend, Austrian philosopher, Robert Faller, the notion of interpassivity. What is interpassivity? Something beautiful, I think. Remember so-called weepers. You still find them in south of this. uh, These were, in traditional societies, women paid to cry for you, to do the mourning for you. beautiful you can stay at home watch pornography whatever if your father dies no you are doing the morning through others even to go more into the i always admired in tibet they have this uh, praying wheels you know you write a prayer you put it into a small wheel, you turn it around mechanically, and it counts as if you are praying. It doesn't matter what you are doing, thinking about sex or what, you are praying. Now I come to the crucible. You will say, but okay, this goes only in primitive societies. No. I think the biggest contribution of United States of America to 20th century culture is something that's called, I think, said laughter. You know, you watch a TV series, comic, and laughter is part of the soundtrack. You know what's the mystery of this? I remember when I was uh, doing this, uh, uh, I returned to home that tired, I look at the TV screen, and I was too tired to laugh, but the TV screen laughed for me and I felt relaxed as if I have laughed. This is something wonderful. The, uh, that's my interpassivity. The other is not acting for you. The other is even taking over the passive experience for you. Uh, and I think that we are again, less and less able to have this proper rituals where the big other is involved and uh, and that's i think a very dangerous thing uh, did you see it was well before the war i hope it was shown there the movie it's not a great movie but somehow it was interesting don't look up where mary street plays the president there you have a strange figure of the other who doesn't know for me. They all know catastrophe is real. Some comet is approaching the end of life. But they go on as if they don't know it, although they personally know it. This is more and more our, our situation. So now, really, to conclude, very First, uh, 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 this big other is slowly disintegrating. Let me give you another tragic example of big other. It happened to, uh, to a girlfriend of a friend of, of, a friend of mine. She, uh, no, it was the other way around, sorry. Boyfriend of her, she wanted to become a woman. And she went through all the painful surgical procedures, and uh, all her friends supported her. Everything seemed okay. Then, on a certain day, she got from municipal city authorities a note saying, You are now officially a man. She killed herself instantly. You know, like, It was, as long as it was her private thing, it was okay. The moment it became registered social authority, it was over. Uh, Okay. I don't want to go over time because I wanted to speak briefly about Elon Musk, who to you did good things, but uh, 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 what, but, uh, but the way he wants to advertise Twitter is very dangerous. I just want to end up with a, just end up with a little, in a little bit more optimistic way. I think that all is not so dark precisely because in situations that you are now, when, in a way, freedom, free choice and necessity overlap, this is the true freedom, much more than the freedom of choice. Let me mention the biggest, mention the biggest example, love. If there is a free choice, it is that of a love object. You cannot order somebody to fall in love. But once you are in love, you experience love as your fate. You don't have a choice. And I wonder if you would agree my idea is that you never fall in love in the present. All of a sudden, you discover you already are in love. That's why you also never know the reason why you fall in, you fall in love. The moment you can say, OK, this lady or man has nice legs, nice legs, nice eyes, other talks nicely, and so on, and you make a choice, it's not love. So. Uh, Love is a wonderful example of how uh, it's a free choice, but free choice, which is at the same time a deep, the deepest necessity. And my point, your struggle is now the same one. Of course, in some formal sense, you have the choice. I will fight or not. But admit something, it's not the same choice as When you go to a sweet store, should I get a a strawberry cake or a chocolate cake? It's a choice where if you choose to fight, you choose it because you know that you cannot do it otherwise. You know, it's this radical choice where you realize, but I wouldn't be able to live with myself with not doing it. I think that today just the conclusion now. This is what all we in Europe should learn from you. It's not just this superficial freedom of choices. Choice is not just that you click like it, not like it. The deepest choices are doing freely what you have to do. So what can we in Europe learn from you? During the first weeks of the war, we in europe feared that ukraine will be quickly crushed but now we have to admit that our real fear is exactly the opposite one the Ukraine will not be crushed that the war will just go on and on and i'm here very critical I spoke with many people who said, "Oh the tragic fate uh, Ukraine will not be able to resist and so on uh, but uh, secretly this was I wouldn't say directly their desire but that expectation wouldn't it be nice? you are crushed, you are no longer there and then we can of course go through all the hypocrisy of mourning you know we would write wonderful books but. Or text what or what how tragic was your fate and so on. But it will be over after a couple of years. We would make new peace with Russia or whatever. And you, I mean this as extreme love. Although I, uh, it will sound vulgar. You screwed it up for us. You simply resisted where secretly you were not expected to resist. That's the that was the hypocrisy of the West. What should have been good news, a smaller nation unexpectedly resisting brutal invasion is now something that we don't know what to do with it. And here I am ashamed of some leftist colleagues of who play pacifism and warn against like Jürgen Habermas did about Ukraine morally blackmailing Europe, about the danger of returning to heroic military spirit. I think that the lesson of the war is that this golden era of Europe, where we could afford pacifism because we were under Nuclear umbrella by the United States, it's over. And uh, pacifism means just more compromises. I'm especially horrified by the insight proposed by some of my leftist friends when they say that they oppose the war they sympathize, everybody sympathize with Ukrainians, but they say they oppose the war because NATO is in the war just for economic capital reasons to further develop and strengthen the peace of its military industrial complex. And basically what NATO is saying, what these leftists are saying to you is, uh, okay, resist somehow Russian aggression, but not with arms, because if you use Western arms, you support American military industrial complex. It's a model of hypocrisy. So I think this melancholic apathy of Europe is running out of its time. Heroic acts will be needed again not just what you taught us, military mobilization, but also mobilization to cope with ecological catastrophes, hunger, and so on, and so on. I agree that we should resist the temptation of glorifying war as an authentic experience and so on. But I think what we need today, is not just military mobilization, but a uh, general mobilization. There are serious dangers. So now I come back to my beginning, the price of nothing. Uh, we should be aware that we will have to pay a heavy price for nothing, which means our liberty. And we will have to pay it by accepting that there is no return to old normality. We are entering new era. And here I see what Ukrainians are doing for Europe. You will, I hope, push us to awaken from the melancholic apathy and makes us accept the necessity of a new mobilization. Not just or even primarily military mobilization but again old normalization is over we have again fight for our liberty to redefine our liberty so we should totally drop this idea that you are some kind of unfortunate exception let's just impose some peace not pushing putin too far no i think in a way Although I don't always agree with him, but here your Zelensky, sorry, uh, 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 yes, Zelensky was right when he said that uh, you are fighting for Europe, not in this cheap sense, just defending Europe, but uh, in your fate, the fate of Europe will be decided. And I don't mean just this cheap, Beating Russia and so on. It's that Europe has to be awakened from its melancholic apathy where we are not ready to act. And we should be grateful to you to remind us of this that freedom, real freedom, hurts. Real freedom is not. I go to a, again, a candy store, strawberry cake, or other, freedom means accept the necessity to do something to maintain your freedom. That's the lesson you are giving to Europe. And that's what I'm afraid many in Europe don't want to hear. Thank you very much.
2: Okay, thank you so much. Uh, A lot of questions. Uh, Before we get to all of the questions, there's so many of them from our colleagues in Ukraine. I wanted to ask you about this point you made about love. And if you could relate this, at the end you you related this concept, this idea you have of love and this idea of love as freedom, if I understood this correctly, to Ukraine. Mm Because you
1: are, I think, in the same situation, I defined love very formally as yes. free in necessity. You are not free in love. Love can be vulgar, but in a loving way. Love is a catastrophe. Imagine you are a free man and woman. You have an evening, you drink with friends, you go to a movie, maybe a one night stand here and there and then you fall passionately in love all your life is ruined you know that's why i like western love not oriental love oriental love is this stupid buddha smile you know who i love all of you no love is exclusive i love you and i don't care if what happens to the world so in some sense love is characterized by this that you Experience as the highest freedom doing what you cannot not do it. And isn't this what your fight is about? It's not a simple choice. L- like, let's say I'm a vulgar, there are many, an example, Ukrainian who says, okay, I had a relatively good life here. Let's see, it is worth it or not should i rather go out let's measure the profit the losses no you fight because it's not simply because you have to do it i would rather say because you cannot not do it that's the ethical stance in this sense only in this is only and this this is why incidentally i'm almost although i'm still A conservative today, in the sense that uh, 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 conservative, in the sense that I think that uh, I think that uh, how there is something very beautiful. My French friend Alain, but you uh, invented in the expression. Do you have your language? We don't have it, but in French they have it. In English they have it. We use the verb to fall in love, to fall, very important, which means you don't plan it. You fall into it and you don't know even why. And in this sense, love is like authentic religion. In authentic religion, Kierkegaard, my favorite theologist said in a beautiful way that it's an obscenity to say, I compare different religions, oh, Arguments for Christianity sounded best to me, so I decided to be Christian. No. You can understand reasons for being a Christian only when you already believe in it. And with love, it's the same. You see why you fell in love. But once you are already in love, I say, her smile is wonderful. Yeah, but it appears wonderful to me when I'm already in love, you know so i think that that i like in love precisely it's non-universal scope no you don't love all the world this is what totalitarians are saying you know like you are too young to remember when the ddr communist regime fell apart erich milke the horrible minister uh, chief of secret police came to the parliament and said you know when they say, I love you all, it always means except the traitors who have to liquidate, to be liquidated so that we are really all.
2: Okay, Sorry. so now, so I, I'm gonna have to interrupt you because we have many questions and that was my prerogative hey, to ask it. you. A, okay, so, so but now the interrogation begins. So um, right. we have now a question. We are. End of
1: humanism. We are at uh, uh, KTV. Yes.
2: Okay, we, we did love. Now we're on to the the fun stuff, right? Uh, love is a catastrophe. This is the uh, this is the part you came for. So this is from Babel, uh, Ukrainian media outlet, and they asked this following question. They want to know about your work with Russia today. They said that uh, you use the Russian media to interrogate the West with critical questions but don't you think that RT is a bad company not because they're Russians but because they're propagandists who is performing specific information tasks of the Russian authorities and they use your popularity your reputation and your words for their own benefit so can you tell the truth and fight for the truth but your words still be used to build lies uh, okay I I
1: see your point let me just Point out a couple of things here. It was a very risk strategic. It goes without saying that from January on, when I see where things are going, I stopped all collaboration with them. Not only this. Already before, whenever there was a critical point, I took stance against Russia. in my book, I forgot which one. Is it uh, the, uh, the End of Time? OK, in one of my many books, I have a whole chapter on Maidan, Ukraine against uh, Russia. And maybe this is be another provocation for you, for you Ukrainians. I point out already then Putin's nervousness With Lenin, did you notice then on on the 23rd of February, when Putin announced invasion of Ukraine, he mentioned critically only one name, Lenin. He said this upper stupidity, Lenin invented, imagined Ukraine. First, I know it was not true. Uh, From 1917 till 21 or when too. There were attempts at independent Ukraine and so on and so on. And I'm not uh, Lenin. He did many horrible things. But one, he was well aware that great Russian nationalism is the main danger. So he took seriously Ukrainian cultural autonomy. That's why Putin, uh displays on the okay but let's not get lost to my point so again i i was clear there then whenever there was a problem with Russia, they had uh, i forgot the name one philosophical journal where the guys were arrested i did a video for them when riot was there i gave a talk in moscow at that scandal point supporting them and so on and so on so i uh i I'll put it like this. I knew the very risky thing that I was doing. But uh, so I was very careful. Okay, I will ask my critics. I know the point. Nonetheless, allow them to use you. But show me uh, there is not one sentence which I would uh, change today in. Like, I agree with all. It was risky, but listen. Let me tell you some, now, now comes the bad part. Do you know, don't overestimate Western liberalism. You are, it's much better, of course, than, than authoritarianism. but this is why the limits are all the more mysterious. There are more or less the limits in the style of uh, what I mentioned in my talk as prohibited prohibitions. They say nothing is prohibited. Just try, yeah, it was doxa. Yes, I made a video for them. I even allowed them to, I told them, they proposed me to go to Russia and have a public debate with big prosecutor. He, with the one who was prosecuting them. It didn't come to, so no, things are here. Uh, uh, absolutely clear. My despair was this one. I myself was in the last, I would say, 10 years gradually, simply censored, excluded from the big Western media. I remember 10 years ago, every two three months, New York Times uh, 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 invited me to do a co-ed for them, Guardian, and so on. Now, I was slowly pushed out. Why? Because of my critique of political correctness, uh, and so on, the whole series of things. I will not go through them. But uh, 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 now, now uh, two days ago, a text, of course, very proclaim, uh, uh, appeared in Guardian, but bigger US. Not Guardian UK, I'm still prohibited. And it's a crazy paradox, the hypocrisy of the Western left, that you know which media in the West that were ready to publish me? Die Welt in Germany, which is center-right, and uh, Spectator in UK, which is again center-right. And I'm more convinced that there are certain prohibited, certain topics which simply they don't pass in the West. For example, you know that for very moderate criticism of West Bank politics of Israel, I was proclaimed even point the main anti-Semitic philosopher in Europe and so on. So again, don't underestimate a much more subtle censorship in the West. Yes, you can publish what you want in marginal media and so on. But I took great risks. I admit it. And now I promise you it's over. Okay. Uh, it's absolutely over and I incidentally if you're on the other p- side of the story now many leftists attacked me attack me as proto fascist pro-US imperialist so then, speaking how can of, you of, this okay. look what you did yeah sorry
2: so speaking okay, of sorry, these attacks sorry. speaking of these attacks you spoke about uh, this is another question from, uh, from Babel, the Ukrainian media. I know Chomsky um, and so on. Yes, Chomsky, Mearsheimer, how they've criticized the US so much, and they've completely forgotten about what's happened in Russia even after 2014. And so partly because of this, the war was a surprise. The growth of military hysteria in Russia was simply missed by them. What do you think about them? How can we say that Russia's threat was underestimated?
1: I think the two, first, I totally disagree with them here. I don't think they see the global geopolitical meaning of what Putin wants now. It's not, they say it more and more openly. It's not about Ukraine. They, okay, it is immediately, but what is, sorry. What is really about this war? It's to to destroy Western European way of life, and they're even getting ready here for a pact with the United States. Remember that Putin and Trump—that's why they were doing so well—have the same attitude uh, towards United Europe. I mean, uh, Trump ideologist Steve Bannon and Putin's Dugin, they always give the same message to Europe. Yes, long France, long Germany, just long not united Europe. But I think as a radical leftist that the model of united Europe, when different nations meet and coordinate their acts, not because of some uh, narrow ethnic ideology, but because of the common interest, global warming survival is what we all need. It's what we all need. And uh, Russia is now already offering this pact to United States. One of their minor philosophers even wrote in a very arrogant interview that with some Italian medium that Europe, it's over. The end goal of this operation is to split Europe, uh, England, maybe France, or American, all other, especially Germany. We take it. Then you know what shocks me? What shocks me is this open, openly proto-fascist and theological background. You know, my ex-leftist friends, It's not only Trotsky, I also had Yanis Varoufakis and so on, you know. Uh, uh, They, I think, behind their mind is one syllogism, one reasoning, which is something like this. Uh, The main enemy today is American imperialism. So whoever is an obstacle to American imperialism, it cannot be all bad you know, like this automatic sympathy. Then I tell them, but look, look their ideology. Look, not so much Dugin, he is a clown. Look, Ivan Ilyin, who in the twenties criticized a little bit Western fascism because he said it's not authentic enough. He said the greatest tragedy was the loss of the white counter revolution because they would have been Authentic fascists. So Putin, and you know that Ilyin is now half an official figure. His books are reprinted and given to all military conscripts and so on and so on. So I am not uh, reading between the lines that Putin is a fascist. I very naively read his ideologies. They are openly this. And when people tell me, What about that Azov group and so on, no? I tell them, okay, I don't know, but I know a lot through friends about the true horror which is Wagner group in Russia. It's a whole private army which is already operating all around the world. That's what we know in ex-Yugoslavia. It's not just you, Ukraine. Uh, Wagner group members are already in the Republika Srpska, in that part of Bosnia. They are getting ready to trigger this order to get Kosovo back to Serbia and so on. It's a plan and it's a plan for new globalization where I think uh, uh, Medvedev, yeah, Medvedev proposed a formula where he says, this will be an egalitarian globalization where we will not try to impose on others our values, but will be pragmatically, pragmatically respectful towards others. I say yes. We have seen what this means. You remember when Taliban won in in, in Afghanistan they immediately made peace with China. This brutal, pragmatic peace, the deal was, you, China, tolerate us in Afghanistan, we don't care what you do with Uyghurs there. Sorry, I stopped. Everybody made
2: peace with the Taliban, though. All of the neighbors made peace with the Taliban, including Russia, um, including Iran.
1: You know, the big question still is, what did they do wrong? do wrong Americans there that after 20 years or how much of occupation they, that it, for it all
2: fell yes. apart. And we'll way. invite you for another talk on this topic. But before we, we continue on the Taliban, I want to ask you about Timothy Schneider. Uh, we
1: se- I'm stupid, I don't even, don't kill me. I'm not bluffing. When he says Russia is a fascist regime, I agree with him. But what more did he say? I don't know.
2: So we have a question about this term Rashidum. Do you think this is a new ideology? You've talked about how Russia wants to destroy uh, Europe, wants to destroy the United States, wants to destroy this European ideology or European way of life. What is the replacement for it?
1: They offer a the replacement here. Uh, uh, what they call they called respect and tolerance, which basically means supporting local authoritarian regimes, even military help, because never underestimate the fear. That's why Russians are especially mad at Ukrainians, no, revolution. That's why... Putin, Russia reacted, you remember, in such a panic when demonstration in Belarus began and when were Azerbaijan or where and so on, no? And you know what is so interesting? This is the most obscene point, that Russia and especially especially China, this was for me the worst point of China. You remember when they, there were demonstrations in Hong A Chinese big ideologist wrote in the official newspaper a very interesting text, where he said, what you are triggering now in Hong Kong, it will return to you, look what is happening with Podemos in Spain, in France. You know what was so crazy there? He did not talk about socialism versus capitalism he directly referred to the solidarity of those in power. You know, like, don't play triggering disorder here, you will get it. It's incredible, this, uh, also, sorry, another point, if you have any doubts, look, my God, who are Putin's friends in the West. The only ones he systematically supports are extreme right. Alternative für Deutschland, uh, 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 Marine Le Pen, and so on and so on. It's absolutely uh, 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 Salvini and those right-wingers in, 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 uh, in Italy and so on. I, I, now there is, we can go into theoretical debate. Is this really fascism? Okay, it's a specific fascism because don't forget, Nazism is not the only fascism even in Franco-Spain with Mussolini, a certain minimal plurality was allowed, you know. Fascism is not this nazi only that. So I think, yes, it's really... To give you a story which you will like, I was in China, now it's a speech, 10 years ago, they no longer use uh, the term communism, now they prefer the term society. And they, then I asked them, listen, I'm an idiot, Western, naive, I don't get it. Could you simply explain to me what do you mean by harmonious society? And they told me it means a society where every part, individual, is at its own place and does his her specific work woman is a good mother, worker, a good worker, teacher, a good teacher, manager, a good manager, no? And I said, now I understand it. There are no multicultural disagreements. We, in Europe, we call this corporate fascism,
2: (laughs) you know? That is to say, you allow capitalism. There's no room for love in story. There's no room for love in that story, I Ah, think. It's more perverted because I am for, Love in this
1: crazy radical way. But precisely these countries affirm a certain perverted political love for the leader. So I claim where the basis of uh, the basis of politics is love for the leader, like in North Korea today. Beware, beware. That's why. I don't like authenticity. That's why, can I think it will maybe surprise you about Zelensky? You hear a lot, many of these stupid remarks, you know, uh, he was an actor, he acted president. I love this idea. For me, true ethical greatness is not you become, you look deep into yourself, you become what you are. No, true greatness is you adopt a certain mask role and you play it to the end, to death. I remember listening an interview with Zelensky where he said openly, even at the beginning of his presidency, he felt a little bit like I am acting, no? But when Russian threat began and war, he said a wonderful expression, something like, now I have to play it for the real. Now I have to fully identify with it. That's heroism today. I don't believe in this. Look deep into yourself. If you look deep into yourself, only in myself, you discover a lot of it. Usually, we all have our dirty secrets and so on. Now, true capitalism is: I adopted a certain role authentically, and I'm ready to play it to the end.
2: Okay, so we have a really good question along these lines about your yeah. expectations about what's going to happen in Europe after this war, that many people, this is from Alexander Kravchuk, many people suspect that many Western leftists are disappointed and disappointed supporters are not being able to overcome the old confrontation lines between NATO and the USSR or Russia. Could this war be an impetus for the development of new universal alternatives for the world?
1: Oh my god, this is a very difficult and serious question. Because what I am, unfortunately, also, uh, uh, with regard to all the reactions of hatred against me, what I am seeing is that on the opposite, this war gave this, I call them, you know, like the main thing today is to fight our our military establishment. They really believe war exploded because military establishment uh, put pressure on American politics to, to engage itself to support. But on the other hand, I think, It's even the opposite. Do you remember when Putin announced the invasion? Do you remember first Biden's reaction, which was, I think, even too soft? He did something horrible. When they asked him, what about sanctions now, lock note, he said, well, let's see what kind of evasion. Will it be limited, or in other words, he offered Putin a way out. Why don't you grab just Donbas down there, and then we can make a deal? And Putin didn't accept that. So, uh, so I, I, I don't, uh, I don't believe these vulgar pseudo Marxists who do this direct economic reductionism. It's really about. Profiteering and so on. You know, they are. I think they are a new stage of these conspiracy theories. You know, first it was COVID. It's a conspiracy by the big companies. You know the story. Bill Gates wants to put chips in all of us and so on. Then, uh, then, uh, then uh, now it's ah. Then it's global warming. They claim it's a pseudo problem, it's just another way for big capital to control us. Now it's the war, and do you know it will interest you that? From my sources in these crazy circles, I was told they are already preparing a third thought, paranoia conspiracy theory, that those in power will invent contact with aliens as now it's an emergency state all around the world. We have to have uh, global discipline and so on and so on. Again, that's another reason for me to support Ukraine, all these conspiracy theories. And you have different versions. One is American establishment. The other one is it's all a secret deal between Biden and Putin. It's really even a serious war. It's a deal between Biden and Putin to to screw Europe, to destroy Europe. Incidentally, here, not that I believe in it, but there may be a tiny element of truth in the sense that there are strong circles in the United States, again, as I already said, who don't like United Europe. That's why, as a leftist progressive, I think, Now, it's the time to fully return to uh, United Europe. But what will happen? Sorry, answering the question. I simply don't know enough and I worry a lot. I think, as I wrote in my last text, that the first thing that Western Europe should do is stop this obsession with Putin like, you know, uh, did we go too far? Did we cross the red line, the red line, or what? You know, like worrying all the time. No. First, we should be aware that my God, Putin crossed the red line. I'm ready to buy everything, even. I say to friends. Who- tell me, but Ukraine did some not nice things in Donbass prohibited Russia. I said, okay, I don't know, but wait a minute. We are talking now about a superpower attacking fully another country. If this is not crossing the red line, then I don't know what this means. So I think that first, the only way to stop Russia is to be, not in the sense of dropping bomb, but to prevent global war. The West also should, should the red lines. Like when I agree here, we do all even offer uh, Russians that uh, you control the ships, but that grain has to go out of Odessa. You know also why, I warn you, that's what really worries me. Don't underestimate, a warning to Ukrainians, the success of Russian propaganda in Africa, Asian countries, Latin America and there, even Serbia and so on. And that's why this gesture would have been very wise. Going to the end, red line, the grain must go through Odessa port going out, because this would be a gesture which would also be had to be perceived as a gesture for the starving people in the Third World and depicting Russians as those who are really prepared. because Russians are now playing this game. You know, they even proclaim this is an obscenity that they are decolonizing Ukraine. That after Ma- Maidan was Western colonial occupation of of Ukraine, you know. Don't forget Asia, Africa. I think that this is absolutely clear that this is the Russian plan. It's simply new glo- global order, new globalization.
2: Absolutely. So it's enough at- to protect
1: Ukraine. We will have a European fortress, but we saw in Belarus, what horrors they are able to do, like infiltrating refugees and so on. They, are, they will be extremely brutal here in provoking crisis in Western Europe with immigrants and so on and so on.
2: Okay, I think uh, Timothy, Brick is our time up. Do
0: Just
1: you now think for the lecture or in. in Sorry, is he your your husband, or are you really uh, we're, are you really we're siblings? Played?
0: We're siblings.
2: Yes, somehow.
0: Yes, spiritually. (laughs) Yes, We
2: are soulmates. We are soulmates. We
0: We will, we will figure it out. I (laughs) I have my theories. I have my theories. We need to, to do some historical research, but anyway, thank you a lot. Thanks a lot for your time, for your, you know, energy, and for answering all these questions. We will have some polls for the audience. So the audience, please, you can stay. For a second or two and uh, answer some of these questions, if you want to be engaged. But uh, you know, I I think I think we had a very productive and fun conversation. Yeah, Yeah. a very brief final statement. You know what is my message?
1: Don't fall into this trap of. the left, parts of the left, are pro-Putin, so uh, the left is to be weak. There is still quite a lot of left. Look at Paul Mason in the UK and others who are real leftist and absolutely pro-Ukraine. So uh, don't write off the left. Remember that there is a guy here, our common enemy, who is... Whatever he is, my God, he is not a leftist in any sense and doesn't also claim to be a leftist. Don't write left too quickly because especially if, pray to God, you will survive free, you will need not this humiliating support, but my God, you know, You will need to be included quickly into the developed world. And let's hope that you will not get the worst of Europe, just uh, uh, exploitation and so on and so on. You will need leftist friends. but I agree with you when you say, now it's the time for the left to prove, you know, to prove that they are really for you. Because again, it's horrible how all these stories, you know, li- like I tell them, for example, yes, that Azok charismatic leader, but in the elections he got one 1.3%. No, that guy of your extreme, right? And then I told them. Okay, even if it's two, three percent, but in every West European country, left uh, sorry, the radical right is getting more, and okay. they always mention you.
2: So I'm going to have to interrupt you now because our friends in Kiev have to go. But one final question, and it's a very short question: Are you going to visit Kiev soon? Soon as possible. Okay, excellent. And then we'll and then we'll have you in Pittsburgh. I would love to. I would love
1: to. I would even if I have to fly somewhere and then with a train. I'm an old lover of trains. I like trains so much. You know. You know why? Because I'm totally alienated. I like to see the countryside through the window of a train when you can then type your note. I'm not interested in nature. Nature is for me something that you look through the through the window. You know. Yes, we have so excellent trains. Yes, we will we'll, we'll get you on a train.
2: So on. It's done. It's written. We will put you on a train, and you're coming to Kiev soon. So thank you, Professor. It was a I true honor. Very grateful to you. I hope I wasn't too. Uh, confused
1: and so on, you know? Because, sorry, just one thing which is important, really the last one. You know what's so important when people say, now it's war, what philosophy can do? Now, but are we aware that now, apropos Ukraine, we all have to do with questions, my God, which are really philosophical questions. What is freedom today? how can we organize our freedom, are we free, and so on. It's a unique situation where even common people need philosophers to at least clarify things, and so on. It's, for me, as a philosopher, the best time to live in, I just, you know what's my fear, half a sentence? My fear is I worry about this... Now that they have this brutal butcher from Syria, general, the Russians, no? that They will just slowly, slowly burn villages, go up, you know? I hope they will be somehow stopped, or let's hope the optimist reading is that they want just to get some territory, then to start some kind of negotiations or whatever, you know? I still worry, don't be too optimistic I don't think you have already won. You know what I mean? The danger is still there. But I love your cities. I love Lviv. I like Khark- Kharkiv, Kiev. I, I love the country. I love the country. And not there is one very sad racist prejudice, that you, Ukrainian having beautiful girls, this is very sad. And then many people living in Slovenia, we have some refugees, automatically assume that they are potentially prostitutes. You know, many of them were offered jobs in nightclubs and so on and so on. This is not your problem. This is our problem. You know, remember that in Western Europe it's a more refined racism, but it's also racism. You know? it
0: was nice
1: and we have emails and so on to be Absolutely.
0: in contact thank you thank you so much Excellent. we will stay in touch thank with you. You. Bye-bye.
1: Thank thank you. you bye-bye thank you
0: thank bye-bye. you professor
2: Bye. thank you Jen. thank you everyone bye-bye.